Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. The topic that we're focusing on this afternoon is the question of how are we reconciled to God? And Hebrews 10 speaks in detail on that question. Hebrews 10 then, beginning in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, not, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have, have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So far from God's word. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm 51, verse 6. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon, we return to a series on the basics, the essentials of the Christian faith, and we use the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide for that study. This week, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's on page 521 of your books of praise. There the question is, since, this is what we saw last week, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? 
Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last several weeks, we've been looking together at the reality of sin in our lives, the seriousness of our sin, the depth of our sin, the way that sin touches every part of our lives, if we're honest enough to see it. And then last week, we we went into depth looking at the seriousness of our punishment by God. God puts a price on our sin. And the Catechism in the last several weeks has been working to chip away at all the different excuses that we make for ourselves. We've asked the question, did God make us this way, sinful people that we are? And the answer is very clearly no. The brokenness in human life and human relationships is not the way that God has made us. We've done this to ourselves. The condition that we find in ourselves is the result of our own disobedience and our parents and ancestor Adam and Eve's decisions. God made us free in order to love him, but we've abused that freedom to turn away from him. Then we looked at the excuse that many of us make for ourselves. Isn't it unfair for God to hold me to a standard, such a high standard perfection, when that's not a realistic standard to hold me to? But then we saw last week, no, Scripture teaches God made us able to to reach that standard. He made us able to keep His law perfectly. And so He has every right to continue holding us to that same standard. Why should we, the guilty ones, have any right to tell God, the only righteous one, what His standard of judgment ought to be? Does it make any sense for criminals to rewrite the law? And then the Catechism had us ask the question that we also often ask, well, why can't God just overlook my sin. He's God, isn't he? Why can't he just overlook it? But scripture teaches it's actually precisely because he's God that he can't overlook our sin. We might be able to persuade ourselves that our sins are small, they're no big deal. Our capacity for evil is is not a, a huge capacity, and it's all something that God ought to overlook. But Scripture teaches that He is God. He sees sin for what it is. And then for Him to overlook sin, even though He is righteous, would be for Him to ignore evil, would be for Him to violate His own righteous character. He would cease to be God if He overlooked our sin. No matter how small or insignificant we think our sin might be, God considers it very serious. 
So now in Lord's Day 5, we find ourselves in a position where we've, we've lost all of our excuses. They've been taken away from us, and we're faced with the reality that we are sinners facing God's judgment. And so the Catechism now urges us to face that problem head on. We are guilty. Our sin is serious. And that's true for each of us. Your sin is serious. Every one of us is going to have to give account to God for our sins. Even our thoughts, our desires, our words, our inclinations to sin, and certainly our actions. They may well even be made public on the final day. And so there's no sense in in hiding even under a sort of corporate umbrella that, hey, well, at least we're all sinners together in some general, non-specific sense. The reality is, as Scripture teaches, you are guilty for your sins, and you will have to give account to God for your sin. God will not overlook your sin just because you're one among a crowd. His punishment is determined by an unchanging, unflinching, objective standard of justice. That's also what we saw last week. And so God's word then calls us before this hard, terrible truth. And so the catechism also rightly pushes us to get there, to face that question. We've been tried in God's court. We've been found guilty. And we've been sentenced to a terrible, eternal judgment. And so the question that stands before us now is probably the most important and most urgent question in your life. How can a guilty person like you be reconciled into God's favor, to a God who's holy and righteous and whose standard of justice will not change for you? The reality is, Time is flying in our lives. Our lives are passing by quickly. And every second that goes by takes us one second closer to that day of judgment. So the question before us is, what will we do to be reconciled to God before it's too late? Well, the first question that the Catechism then would have us consider is, can I pay my own way out? Before God. If Scripture teaches that payment must be made, God will not change that standard, God is not going to overlook my sin, then what do I have to do to pay my way out before it's too late? And for many world religions, this is the answer that's given we pay our way. It's an attractive option. Many of us think, well, I've always, you know, this is my life. I've always paid my own way. I've never depended on anybody else. And so if my sins need to be paid for, well, then that's what I'm going to go and do. So Judaism, for example, teaches that the answer is to keep the ritual law of God. You can outweigh your sins in the balance of God if you do enough good works as defined by the Torah. So keep your, keep your food kosher. Get special light switches installed in your house so that you don't have to turn your lights on on Sunday because that would be lighting a fire and that would be work and that would be breaking the Sabbath. Not Sunday, Saturday. That's seriously, they teach that. Islam teaches the same thing. If you do enough good, God will overlook the bad. Do the five prayers every day. Memorize the Koran. Go to Mecca for a pilgrimage. Roman Roman Catholicism, though they're Christian, though they ought to know better, They teach the same thing. 
If you've sinned, you can bring it to the priest and he'll give you a certain term of penance and you'll, you'll do what you need to do. Say the right number of Hail Marys or Our Fathers, whatever you need to do and your sins will be covered. Pay a certain amount of money to the church and you can get yourself or a loved one through purgatory. You can go straight to heaven. And so many Christians, and to be honest, even Reformed Christians, fall into this way of thinking. We believe this, that we can pay our way out. We often don't even realize it, but then when we, fall, when we find ourselves falling into sin, we ease our consciences by doing some good work to try and make up for it. It's that same belief that if we do enough good, then God will somehow overlook the bad. Well, this is all attractive because it seems to make the problem something we can manage. It's, it's a manageable problem. Don't tell me my debt is unpayable because then I will despair. Just give me hope. Let me take care of it myself. But Scripture teaches that approach is a lie. First, we lie to ourselves that our problem isn't really all that bad. We just scratch the surface of our sin and then stop there. All things considered, we conclude we're still basically fairly good people. And so if there is a price to pay for my sin, well, it's, a, it's surely a manageable price. If I do some great sacrifice for God, then surely he will consider all things even. But scripture teaches that there's only one wage for sin. There's only one price for sin, and that's death. The Lord Jesus was as clear as anyone in Scripture. He taught, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Or consider the parable of the, the unforgiving servant where he describes our debt before God as something that's utterly unpayable. In that parable, he uses a wage that, or a debt that's comparable to 200 years of wages. No, 200,000 years, that is. So the only way we can, we can believe that somehow the price for my sin can be paid by myself is if we've stopped letting Scripture teach us who we really are. Hell is far worse than we can ever imagine, and eternity is far longer than we can ever imagine. And so if our approach is to say, well, I'm going to somehow find a way to pay my way out, we're lying to ourselves that we're not as bad as God's word tells us we are. The second lie we tell ourselves is that God doesn't take my sin all that seriously. We've dismantled that idea several times in the last several weeks, God tells us unmistakably that he takes our sins, which we might consider to be insignificant, he takes them very, very seriously. We might not take them seriously, but his ways are not our ways. And so the Catechism has us address this lie that we tell ourselves, can we, by our own efforts, somehow pay our own way out? Can we make that payment for our sins, and God's word tells us un, unambiguously, no. On the contrary, as the Catechism says, we daily increase our debt. Even the very effort to pay your sin is an insult to God. It diminishes your sin, and it's a sin in itself. If we knew who we were, if we saw ourselves as God sees us from his perspective of righteousness, 
then we would only fall on our faces before him and plead with him to spare our lives. There's no way ever that we're going to pay our own way out. Instead, even daily, even on our best days, we only make the problem worse. And we're not just deeply in debt. We're running a serious deficit. We have so little comprehension of the evil inside us that exists within us. And if we, if we knew it, if we knew how, how bad the problem was, we would never dare to suggest to God that we can somehow fix ourselves. His word is so clear. As Paul says, you were dead in your, tra- in your, in your sins and transgressions. Dead people don't pay their way out. So again, the notion that we can pay our way out of this dilemma is a proud and defiant lie before the face of God. We don't know half our debt, and the deficit that we're running is crippling. We've offended the holy, just God in countless, unimaginable ways, and our evil inclination to sin, our selfishness, our our, our desires to sin still offend Him daily. He's profoundly offended, not just by the sins that we've committed, but even by the sins that we would commit if we were capable of getting away with it. Our sin makes us repulsive before God. That's true, we do need that debt to be paid. But we deceive ourselves if we think that by our good works, by our efforts, that's going to happen, that we can make things right with God. And yet our debt must be paid, or we will face God's wrath. Is there another way? Well, we know there is, and that's our our second point. This is what the Old Testament sacrificial system taught so clearly. Bulls, sheep, goats, and other animals were brought there to the altar and sacrificed for the sins of the people. Depending on the occasion, each family would bring maybe a sheep or some other animal, and the priest would slaughter that animal on behalf of the family. The picture was unmistakably clear. That animal is dying. It's having its throat slit for your sins. The animals represented the very person or the family which deserved to die for their own sins. They would be led up to the altar of God's justice, and there they would have their throats slit and their blood poured out on the altar. With the thousands of families that would come to the temple every year, there would sometimes literally be rivers of blood flowing out from the temple, showing God's unchanging standard of the wages of sin is death. Each family then brought a substitute for their sins. And in each case, the message was was clear. This is God's justice. This should have been you. So the sacrifices pointed to the family's sinfulness and deservedness of judgment. You see that in Hebrews 10 verse 3. These sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. God had them repeat those sacrifices over and over again every year. And why? So that the people would never forget that they are sinful, that they are offensive before God. They're guilty. They're in need of forgiveness. So those sacrifices, they pointed to our need for forgiveness, and they pointed to the reality that sin can be atoned for. It can be paid for by someone else. But that said, point is all that those sacrifices could do. 
They couldn't make the payment themselves. The families would have received forgiveness, yes, to be sure, but not because a bull or a goat or a sheep bore their penalty. Hebrews 10, verse 4, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God is very, very deeply offended by our sins, and our neighbors' lives can be destroyed because of our sins. A goat dying doesn't fix either of those problems. It's just a goat. Goats can't pay for human sins. And that should be obvious to us if we think about it. Goats can't take responsibility for our sins. It's just not something that goats can do. They're just goats. Humans take responsibility for human sins. What's more, even if a goat could have, imagine a goat could have taken responsibility for our sins. How could a goat bear the wrath of God against sin and somehow pay that full penalty? How long do you think a goat would last in hell? Could any creature bear the eternal wrath of God in such a way as to actually save others from it? Well, of course not. And that's what our catechism also reminds us. No mere creature can sustain the burden of God's wrath against sin and somehow deliver others from it. God never intended those sacrifices to actually be the punishment for our sins, to actually bear that penalty. All they were were symbols. All they did was point They pointed to a greater substitute who truly could pay for sins. They they stood there highlighting the need for forgiveness and the fact that it could be obtained by substitution, but they didn't provide that substitute. And that substitute, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. They pointed ahead to what he would do actually bearing the full weight of God's wrath against your sin. As our text says in verses 11 through 14, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Once those old symbols were fulfilled, they had no use anymore. It's one reason why there's no temple in in Jerusalem any longer. As the author to the Hebrews writes, what's becoming obsolete and growing old is soon to disappear. It's one of the reasons that I believe that Hebrews was written before 70 AD, before the temple was destroyed, because he talks about it as an event that's coming very soon, because the temple had just become irrelevant. And so after Christ came to fulfill everything that the temple stood for, everything those sacrifices pointed to, it became useless, it became obsolete, and it was very soon destroyed. And so whatever Judaism is today, it certainly isn't a continuation of the old Judaism that you find in Scripture. That religion revolved around the temple 
and the sacrifices and the atonement for sin, none of which exist anymore in Judaism because they had their fulfillment in Christ. So if you look at the Judaism today, what you find is an endless keeping of minute commandments that have almost nothing to do at all with godliness. The Judaism of today buys into that same lie that's very radically rejected by the Old Testament itself that we can keep God's, that we can earn God's favor by keeping a set of absurd rules that have nothing to do with godliness. All the sacrifices did was point to our guilt and our need to be made right with God and the availability of a substitute. And they were so clear, we will not be reconciled to God except by blood. Without the wages of sin being paid, there is no hope at all for sinners. And so when Christ came, he came with that same message that's so consistently found throughout the Old Testament. We are a guilty people desperately in need of forgiveness. He made it so clear there's nothing that's more important than being reconciled with God. But when the Lord Jesus came, he didn't just point to the problem as those sacrifices did. He also brought the answer. That's what he came for. He told his disciples this on numerous occasions. He came to bear our curse on himself. And for real, not just as the sacrifices only formerly portrayed, he came to actually accomplish it. That's why Paul can write in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. The debt which we owed God, the punishment that we ought to have paid to God because of our sins, that's what Christ came for, to deal with it fully, completely, 100%. So this is the answer to that that most important question, how can we be reconciled with God The answer is, yes, justice must be done, but God has provided a way out. He didn't have to. He could have cast us into hell. He had every right to never have anything more to do with sinners like us, but he did provide a way out. It highlights his grace. All who forsake their commitment to sin and turn to Christ from the heart putting their hope in him, do receive full forgiveness. Anyone who acknowledges his sin and his sinfulness will find great comfort in that gospel promise. We deserve God's judgment. And there's no way that we're ever going to work our way back into God's favor It's not even a noble effort. It's an arrogant effort. It's a lie, and it's a lie that we tell ourselves before the face of God. But God's Word tells us in no uncertain terms that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. That's what you see in Hebrews 10, verse 12 as well. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down, at the right hand of God. He sat down because there was no work to be done anymore. The price was far more than you and I were able to imagine, but the price was paid. Now we might think, no, 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 my sin, my adultery, my abortion, my homosexuality, my pedophilia that I have committed, my sin is too great for God 
to be able to forgive. But Scripture would say, no, it's far worse than you think it is. It's even worse than you imagine. Your guilt is even greater than you feel in your conscience. But it's still not too great for Christ to cover. Our great high priest, again, offered for all time one sacrifice for sin and sat down because the work was done. By one sacrifice, this is quoting later in the chapter, he made perfect forever, legally speaking, those who are being made holy. And so we must choose as Christians where we are going to stand. Are we going to stand on our works and our self-righteousness and the fact that we go to church? If, Christ were to, if you were to appear before the judgment throne of Christ at this moment and Christ said, no, you're a guilty sinner, will your response be, yeah, but Christ, I went to church, but Christ, I prayed a lot, and Christ, I did all these things, and I helped in my church. Is that going to be your response before God, or will you appeal to the blood of Christ who was paid, that, that was spilled to pay for your sin? Those are the only two options we have before God, and one will take us to hell forever, and one, by God's grace, without us deserving it in the least, will bring us reconciled before God. And so we're called to forsake any arrogant notion that, that we are already somehow by ourselves at peace with God. His word does say otherwise. Our sins are very serious before him. But he has given us a way out. And so, brothers and sisters, let us cling every day with a humble and sincere heart, that broken and contrite spirit that we sang about in, him, in Psalm 51. Let us cling to Christ as our only hope for salvation and reconciliation with God. In Him alone do we have peace with God. The payment is made. God's favor is restored. Only in Him can we receive the blessing from Him that we hope to receive at the end of this service, that the Lord be with us, that His grace surround us. And so as we go into another week, let's allow this basic Christian truth to shape the way that we live and the way that we think in the coming week, especially if, or, or rather even when, we fall into sin. We know that we are going to be tempted again to downplay our sinfulness, to say, well, it wasn't really such a serious sin. Instead of that, let's let God's word tell us who we really are and how our sin really looks before God's face so that our hearts would be softened and broken and contrite before him, humbled and yet at the same time confident that his perfect sacrifice is enough to cover all of our sins. Let's accept the cost for our sins. Let's not fight against God for the price that he puts on our sins, but instead accept the price that Christ paid for our sins. Because if we turn to him, we know they, they really are paid for. They really are completely covered. And so let us then be thankful from the heart and also merciful to one another, because each of us are also sinners, having the need to be forgiven by Christ. So then may our lives, going out from those valleys of, of, of sorrow that we've been in for the last several weeks, looking at our sin, exploring our sinfulness, let's go out of that valley 
into Christian joy, overflowing with joy and with peace and with thankfulness to God because we truly are restored to God's favor by the sacrifice of Christ. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from Psalm 130.